We are in Genesis. Yeah, okay. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. After finishing Malachi, jumping to Revelation, we resume back in Genesis. Verse 2, chapter by chapter, through the Old Testament on Sunday evenings. Let's pray. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, I just thank you that we can begin and end the day in the Word of God. And Lord, how how grateful we are for this plan, this creation. Today that we're tonight we're going to be talking about you actually making a garden for us, Lord. And then you placed man, you made a garden for man and placed him there. How you want to bless us still, Lord. I pray that you would speak that into our lives this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so chapter 2 of Genesis Chapter 1, the first six days. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And so God rested, it says on the seventh day, not that he was weary or tired. God does not stop working ever, really. Uh, but it, 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 he rested in the sense that his creation was finished. The creation of the world was finished. He rested to show that his creating work was done and also to give us a pattern uh, with the structure of time, a seven-day week. Uh, and an example of, uh, he also is giving an example of, of the blessing of rest uh, to man on the seventh day. The seven-day week, it's permanently ingrained in man. There's a couple times of in history, the French Revolution tried to uh, make a 10-day week that failed. The Leninists 
at the very beginning, the Bolsheviks at the be- very beginning of the Soviet Empire tried to change it to six days. That failed. Uh, it's sort of uh, written in our DNA, this seven days, and uh, used as a structure of time, which it was throughout the Bible. The interesting in verse 3, it says that the Lord blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he rested from all the work. So is that a a commandment that we be observing uh, the Sabbath, uh, Saturday, on Saturday? Uh, Well, uh, we believe that the the Bible um, teaches that Jesus uh, was Lord of the Sabbath, that he was the uh, fulfillment of the Sabbath, and that um, the Sabbath really um, is a foreshadowing um, of Jesus Christ Himself. Uh, it's in Hebrews chapter 4, it says this There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, meaning that uh, the Sabbath. Was reco- uh, was really fulfilled uh, in Christ Himself. Jesus Himself uh, said that the Sabbath was uh, made for man and not man for the Sabbath, uh, and that um, in, in, among other places in in Colossians uh, chapter two. Uh, It says, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Uh, And so uh, we're no longer required to observe Saturday as the Sabbath. Nevertheless, it is written into creation, this um, idea of a day of rest, and so, uh, and so, you know, I, I believe uh, very strongly in in, in Scripture that uh, we are taught that we should have a day of rest um, consecrated to the Lord. However, uh, it is interesting that from that passage in Hebrews, that really we have rest every day. Every day uh, we have a rest because of what Christ has done for us. Again, there remains a rest for the people of God. Uh, Verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 4, then it says in verse 10, For he who has entered his rest for himself also ceased from his works as God did did from him. He's uh, from his, referring to, to Jesus there. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So entering into the rest, meaning entering into that relationship with Jesus where we cease our work. So the, the Sabbath being a, um, a shadow of, of things to come. Now in the Mosaic law to Israel, Israel was uh, the part of the Mosaic law which is applicable to Israel was the law of a Sabbath, the Sabbath law. But Christians uh, began uh, to worship on the first day of the week, Sunday, um, after the resurrection of Christ. In verse 4 of 
Genesis chapter 2, it says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when, they're, when they were created, meaning the heavens and earth were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And so that word history there, it's the Hebrew word teleda. It means, some of your versions may say, uh, these are the generations of the heavens of the earth, or it may say the account or the record. Very interesting study, and I recommend you doing it sometime. Some really um, view this word, um, the Hebrew word teleda, history, or uh, the, the word generations, as sort of the, uh, the linchpin of uh, understanding the book of Genesis. Um, and uh, it's used really... 11 times there are uh, or there are rather 11 accounts or 11 histories uh, given um, in the book of Genesis and so some scholars you know they they sort of divide Genesis and and look at it through the lens of this word so this in in verse 4 here it's really the the history of the uh, or the account um, of the heavens and the earth and how they were made. And so the word reappears in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, uh, which says this is the book or the history of the generations of Adam. And then in Genesis 6, it says these are the, this is the history or the generations of Noah. And, and so in, in, in chapter 10, it says these are the histories of the generations of the sons of Noah. Uh, and and um, then it goes through them. And then in, uh, I'll skip over to Genesis chapter 11. It says these are the uh, histories of the generations of Terah, uh, who was the father of Abraham. And then Genesis 25, uh, these are the uh, same word, Toleda. These are the histories of the generations of Ishmael, uh, of Ishmael. And then... Um, in verse 19, same word for Isaac. And then uh, Genesis chapter 36, uh, same word for Esau. Genesis uh, 37, same word for Jacob. And so uh, the book is really um, an account of the generations of these people. And it was sort of uh, the uh, dividing up um, how history began and, and God began to work through these, um, these men or the descendants of these men. But the first being in verse 4, which is uh, the, the account, uh, same word, uh, some of them usually translated generations, but also can be translated account. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. And so... Uh, many of you may have heard that there are two creation accounts written by two totally different writers with two completely different agendas. And if you've never heard of that, God bless you. Eventually you will. It's used by people to destroy the credibility of the Bible 
and it's written by people who believe that the Bible was not written, or the first five books of the Bible were written uh, not by Moses, but by these five mysterious characters. I think G E P D, and there's one other one. But um, uh, no such thing. Now, it is understandable when you read them, there are stylistic difference, uh, d- uh, differences, um, uh, but. Really, the, the answer to that question is no, there's not two completely different creation accounts written by two uh, people living at different periods of time who have different agendas. These um, two accounts um, are actually complementary in nature. Genesis 1 really is, uh, mentions man as the last of a series of creations. Whereas Genesis 2, man being sort of the center, the crown jewel of God's creation, is the focus and the interest um, of that particular chapter. And it really shows where man is in the hierarchy of living beings. The nefesh, more on that word later. Genesis 1 is really chronological, revealing the sequential events of creation. Whereas Genesis 2 is really topical, with special concern for man and his environment. And so, again, it says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and water and watered the whole face of the ground. So really interesting detail there. There was no rain prior to the flood in Genesis chapter 6. There was a mist. A mist. And kind of like you go into a gr- some greenhouses, just a heavy, heavy mist in there, watering the, con- uh, uh, the contents um, of the greenhouse. This is, so there was a different kind of atmosphere that existed prior to the flood. That explains why the uh, longevity of man was very different then with men living six, seven, eight hundred years, which by the way, there are some animals that live that long um, today, some trees and, and uh, live very, very long as well. But uh, the, the um, you know, dangerous uh, radiation from the, the, the sun, that type of thing, um, was uh, more filtered, if you will, prior to the flood. And there was this mist that watered uh, the earth at that time. And so uh, then in verse 7 it says, "And And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And so he, it says he was made of the dust of the ground, and it's, um, uh, I don't know um, 
if this is going to help your self-esteem, but you are made of the same 17 elements that are in the ground, in the soil. Um, it's also interesting. It, it, it's just beautiful here. It's he, he personally formed man. It's, it, it, it seems that he, uh, he, he stooped down. The Lord God formed man. Uh, man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Different word, breath there, than for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit in the Old Testament is the word uh, ruach. This is uh, not that word. This is the word neshama. Uh, it's the word for, for, for breath. It's not uh, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't inhabiting man. Uh, the uh, man, uh, Adam, was not born again. In some senses, Adam was at a disadvantage to where uh, we are today. Um, a born again uh, man or woman, as we've been discussing in First John, the commandments of God are not grievous to him. <laughs> this is a wonderful promise from First John 5.3, which we've been talking about on uh, Sunday morning. A man or woman where walking in the Spirit, the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're not grievous. It's because he has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the author of those commandments. But there was this one commandment, and we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it more. But of every tree of the garden, verse sixteen, you may eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And that was grievous. It became grievous. It became burdensome to Eve and also to to Adam. But nevertheless, um, he uh, so he didn't have the Holy Spirit in him. Different word there uh, in verse. Uh, seven, but it was um, uh, it was the breath of life that was uh, breathed into him. It says he became a living being. The uh, the Hebrew word nefesh, uh, which means uh, a living being. Um, now other animals are also called living beings. The difference between human beings and every other um, nefesh is that a human is made in the image of God, is made in the image of God, and uh, has a soul. Verse 8 says that the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. So interesting here, the garden was really planted after creation. It was um, a dwelling place for Adam there. And there he put man whom he had formed. And you can only imagine what this garden was like. I was really blessed for five years growing up uh, in, in Venezuela. I, I, this, is no ex- this is not a preacher's exaggeration. My, my father never lived in the city, even though he, he commuted every day. He lived on the outskirts. Our backyard was a full-on jungle. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Well, but and you can imagine three boys. Uh, we, we used to go back there, and there's like wild boar running around, and there's there's pumas back there. There's and just the 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 tropical vegetation in a jungle. 
I don't know how many of you have had the privilege. It is just shocking. I mean, just everything is huge. Uh, and um, they have found fossils of moths. Now, not all moths are these, uh, you know, nasty things that um, are, what color are they? Light brown. In the, they, they seem to have chopped up wings, uh, broken up wings. Uh, some moths are beautiful. They found mo- fossils of moths uh, have been found three feet high. Can you imagine those things? <laughs> and, 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 perhaps that lived in the, in the original Garden of Eden, or um, at least in the, uh, the pre, uh, pri- prior to uh, the flood. There are fossils of this asparagus-like stalks, 40 feet tall. There's horsetail reeds, 50 feet tall. Ferns, over 50 um, feet tall. So you can imagine a long stem rose, okay? You know, and Adam brought one of those dudes back to uh, to, to Eve. But um, just the the colors and the and the smells. Now our college group got to go to the jungle in Peru, and uh, they so they got a taste of that there. Uh, just. Uh, incredible when you go into these jungles where there's just an enormous amount of of, of water and sun and the just the, the colors and the the smells just incredible you know, no pollution no garbage ah no garbage there but uh it says and out of the ground verse 9 the lord made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food and so God is not just this disinterested deity. That's deism. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He cut out all the verses of the Bible that he liked and made his own Bible. Uh, many of our forefathers were, were born-again Christians, but deism was uh, popular uh, then, and it's still popular uh, today, that the Lord, uh, that, that God is... is Yes, there's a God, but he's not really interested in what we're doing around here. I remember Stephanie, she grew up fully, full-on churched in a Southern Baptist church. And I took her back to the college I went to, uh, Wake Forest. And um, I was very close to a few of my teachers. And we went over to the professors for for one afternoon. And, and she starts mentioning God, and I can tell I'm looking at this guy. I'm going, oh, no, Stephanie's assuming this guy is a Christian. And, 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 he's, and, and at some point she says, well, well he had mentioned something um, sort of opposing what she said. And she said, well, do you believe in God? He goes, well, if there is a God, he doesn't much care about what we're doing. First time she had ever met someone uh, who uh, was not a believer in God. Uh, but God is, it says here, he made trees that are pleasant to the sight. He does care. I mean, think about that. The next time you are wherever, just taking it in. The elders were down, the, uh, this church were down in the, um, the Cape at a retreat this weekend. Just unbelievable beauty down there with the marshes and, 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 the, and the, uh, you know, on the bay. Uh, and it's pleasant to look at not because of some strange coincidence. No, God made it like that for you, a blessing for you. He did. Shows how much um, he loves you. And we read uh, last week, I believe, is it Psalm 19, that all creation speaks forth, it utters speech every single day. What? There is a creation and God loves you. 
is what is what the creation utters. Verse 10, now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river bank, river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, it is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidakal. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. And so verse 10 says there, there's a river um, went out of Eden, uh, apparently out of the ground, to, to water the garden and from there, uh, there were four river heads. You're not going to be able to find these four river heads that join this river anywhere in the world because of the flood. Second Peter said that at the time of the flood, the world really perished, and the um, the the, the, geor- the geographical framework of the world changed substantially. Nevertheless. Uh, you do have some rivers named that were adopted later on or p- perhaps were part of the uh, you know, original rivers in some way. Verse 13 appears to be a reference to the Nile uh, because the land of Cush, that's um, yeah, in northern Africa. Uh, the verse 14, of course, has a um, reference to the Euphrates. Uh, but um, you know, it, it, th- these are these are four uh, these are four rivers that actually existed. It says again, it says there was gold in the one onyx, which is a semi-precious stone. Who knows? Uh, at this time, prior to the flood, it may have been something much different uh, there, uh, with with particular beauty or something. Maybe that's why it is mentioned. But um, you know. They refer to these, um, Bible critics refer to these chapters um, as, a, as a creation myth. It's not a creation myth. It's, it's clearly detail here, uh, which indicates that it's not a myth. I remember um, I had a massage guy working on my back. I've had different back problems throughout the years. and. And I just started talking to him about God or the Bible. And he goes, and I, I think I was saying something about the book of Genesis. And he said, yeah, I really appreciate the, uh, the different creation myths. And I said, well, I don't, this I don't believe is a myth. Otherwise, why, is there, why are there genealogies in it? And, and, and the kind of, uh, of details clearly was not written as a myth. Clearly was not. So um, anyway, it goes on in verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And so interesting here that work is a good thing. We get this idea that in the garden of Eden there was no work, that they sort of just hung out all day looking at hippopotamuses and and giraffes and butterflies and actually at three foot butterflies I mean, gigantic ones um, and 
uh, that is not what it was like at all. Even before the fall, work was a good thing. Um, it's interesting there uh, that he put him there to tend it and keep it. Um, oftentimes, I, I, this is going to sound like the worst kind of heresy you've ever heard, but oftentimes you hear that there was only one rule that God gave Adam and Eve, and that was don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But I don't know. Looks looks like to me here there's another one. They're supposed to attend um, the Garden of Eden and to keep it. So work is a good thing. It's something that's good for man. Man is a pastor who, again, I was mentioning it this morning, the better part of my week is dealing with people who are overcome by the world and ministering to them and getting to the place where the world's no longer overcoming them. I tell you, over 50% of the problem that we have, particularly working in the city, is just man not working. I mean, I'm telling you, you want to get a, a, a young man or woman or an old man or woman in trouble, just let them not work. It'll, they'll be in trouble eventually. Uh, and so interesting here, um, this, the, this work here, it was, um, uh, that was, uh, except in this particular case, it's, it's serving with complete delight. One of the things I love about being a born-again born Christian is that you can actually have the experience of going to work and serving as unto the Lord and it being a delight to you. Now, some of you may be thinking, what, what in the world? You know, has this guy ever had a real job? I, I, I have, and, and I can't tell you it was like that, um, even eight straight hours in one day. But, but you know, it can be that you can get that sense again that man had, Adam had, in the garden. That work can be a delight as you work as unto the Lord. Now, after this, after the fall, it's going to be by the sweat of his brows, and there's going to be thorns and thistles and uh, the different bosses making your life miserable. But um, uh, before then, in, it was a delight. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay. So what is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What, what is that? Does that mean that they didn't know the difference between good and evil? I remember I was out in Boston Common, you know, visiting. Uh, actually, I was looking for, for Jimmy. Where was Jimmy today? I don't know. Okay, he was somewhere else. Um, but I was, I was down there in the homeless community. Man, that is a tough ministry. There's a lot of demonic activity there and, and, uh, and folks opening themselves up to the demonic world through, through drugs and otherwise. And, and this um, ramshackle homeless woman comes up to me and Jimmy says, this is my pastor. And the first thing she said to you, what is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Like, what is that? that you, you, eat, you eat the fruit. What knowledge do you get? Whoa, you know. I, I mean, the questions I get 
you know, after church um, are a cakewalk compared to that. What is the knowledge that you get? Great question. Did they not know the difference between good and evil? Of course they knew the difference between good and evil. Um, In the way, listen, that an unfallen angel knows the difference between good and evil. When When an unfallen angel looks over planet Earth, they know what evil is and they know what good is. But they do not know the difference between good and evil by experience. And that's the difference. They do not know the difference between good and evil by experience. Now, was there some sort of weird poison inside of this um, uh, inside of this particular fruit? You do, I mean, you know, you do have commentators out there that said there was like some kind of thing that went into their digestive system. No way. It's just God designated this tree for this for the purpose, and 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 the purpose. Well, you know, let's let's talk about it. Why did God put it there? Well, it had to be there because uh, man has the capacity uh, to choose. When Jesus was asked, "What's the greatest commandment?" What did He say? "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength." God wants your heart. In order to have your heart, you have to have the capacity to, to whether to choose Him or not. I mean, think about it. If you're the only man on planet Earth and there's only one woman on planet Earth and she actually agrees to marry you, well, you know, I guess you're doing pretty good, but uh, she's the only one. Uh, But if there's many other women running around, you know, wow, you know, that means something. Without choice, there's no real fellowship. There's no real love. And I use this in witnessing all the time. And why is there so much suffering in the world? Because man was given a choice. He was given a choice either to reject God or embrace God. My my children, the, the reason that the relationship means so much to me is because they have a choice of whether to reject our love, or to embrace it. So God says to the man, all this stuff, ooh, I shouldn't call it stuff, this, this garden that I planted you, these, these animals, these, this, this fruit, these rivers, these, it's all yours, but to affirm your love for me, here's this one tree. And so it says, you shall surely die. So this is this is not speaking here of do I need to do jumping jacks again? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Okay, we'll see what happens. Okay. Hopefully this will work. All right. So when he says, when you eat of it, you shall surely die, speaking there of a physical death, which did not happen immediately, of course, but supremely referring to a spiritual death. 
the relationship between God and man died as it had previously existed. And so when you read in Ephesians and other places where Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, that's speaking about a reality. There was a death. When Jesus says you have to be born again, it's because you're because apart from Christ you are dead. And so uh, that is the uh, reference to, that's what it means that you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, uh, verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. First time we hear this expression, not good. Everything up to this time was good, 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 good. But it is not good that man be alone. Some folks, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, are called to be single. My brother, who is a missionary in Asia, has been these same one year younger than I am. He's 51. I got my age wrong last week. I said I was 53. I'm actually 52. Sorry about that. Um, he's 51, and uh, he has been called to be single. But marriage is the default, the biblical default. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And so you have the institution of marriage. There's this institution that actually predates the fall of man. Other things like organized nations and governments, these are institutions that came about after the fall of man. Marriage predated it. It says a helper there that is comparable to him or suitable to him or corresponding to him. The marriage relationship. By the way, marriage, monogamous marriage, has blessed and civilize the influence on, on man and on society. Some of the most wild, violent, sociopathic men in history have always um, have been single, never under the plan God gave to influence men for good. I just got finished with a uh, book on Diedrich Bonhoeffer, which it's kind of like a sub-biography of Hitler. And he got married... Either the same day he committed suicide or the day before. Um, and I can give you examples of many other others. It has been used throughout history um, as a, a means of, of, of a civilizing influence um, on, on man. And that's why we um, have good reason to get really energized when the government is uh, changing the the definition of marriage. I say, I say government really was it was five people who were in one branch of the government, but um, a helper corresponding to him. Uh, God created woman to be a perfectly suitable helper to the man. This means that God gave the plan and agenda to Adam. 
and he and the woman work together to fulfill it. And so um, it should be it should be notice, noted that it, the reference here is to marriage. In verse 23 it says, Adam said, this is now the bone of my bone, the flesh of my flesh. Uh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The the uh, the whole context here is God's not sort of ordaining women to be the helpers of all men in authority, meaning women can be an authority in the workplace. Women could be uh, the the prime minister of Great Britain, as in fact they have, or um, the the CEO of a, of a company. But the when it comes to marriage. Uh, as well as um, positions in the church, God is using this framework not to be tinkered with. You know, throughout the Bible, marriage is used as a type of the relationship between God and man and Christ in the church and Christ in an individual believer. When the world sees a marriage where both folks understand their role in the marriage and the marriage is thriving as Christian marriages do. What they see is the harmony, the symmetry um, of the relationship between God and man. And it's supposed to be one of the things that attracts the world to Jesus Christ. Something that says, well, man, I want this relationship with, with Jesus Christ. Is there equality between man and woman? Of course there is. In, in the Bible it says that there's uh, neither man nor woman, neither slave nor free, neither Scythian nor barbarian, all is one in Christ Jesus. But there are different roles um, that... Uh, that um, men and women have in the context of marriage in the church. I like what Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot said, uh, she recently passed away, wonderful woman of God and uh, incredible heritage uh, there, uh, Jim Elliot's widow. Uh, she uh, quotes uh, the, the writer Boyce on this, so she, uh, on the same subject, in what sense is red equal to blue? They're equal only in the sense that both are colors in the spectrum. Apart from that, they are different. In what sense is hot equal to gold, uh, rather to cold? Uh, They are both temperatures, but beyond this, it's almost meaningless to talk about equality. And same thing between men and women. You know, they, they they are equal, but it's almost a meaningless conversation. There's different roles. Uh, that um, they have, and, and it, has there been abuse uh, over the years? Yes, we live in a fallen world, uh, but when there is harmony and symmetry, and people who, man and woman, who understand their roles, man, it's a beautiful thing that attracts the world to Jesus Christ. Verse nineteen says, "Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the air." and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. I just find this 
really interesting <laughs> that he gave Adam uh, that role to, to call the animals um, they're, they're different names. And they're, there's this joke, you know, Adam and Eve are talking and an elephant walks by and Eve says, well, why did you name uh, that uh, animal an elephant? And, and Adam said, because uh, it looks like one. I'm sorry. I do tell a joke once every uh, two and a half years and get rebuked by my children. But um, uh, anyway, and whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And, and there is something remarkably beauty, beautiful about this verse. It's just about man's role in the scheme of things. Again, Psalm 8 David proclaims, he declares, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. What is man that you're mindful of him? You have made him a little below the angels. I mean, he's, he has made man and given him this role. And of course, fallen man has abused the role tremendously in terms of what he's done with the environment and, and, and all. But, but whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Now remember, before the fall... Adam, his brain, <laughs> I mean, we're talking about the most brilliant man ever lived here, this guy Adam. And he was the first and greatest of all the biologists and botanists. Uh, but the, the, the fall would change that. Verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from him, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Now, the word here for rib, uh, there is an enormous amount of back and forth about what that word actually is. Um... it is really probably better translated as a side or a curved side. And what exactly is happening here, we do know. We do know that modern research into cloning and genetic replication shows that every cell in our body contains the body's entire genetic blueprint. So God is, what he's doing here is a, um, a little unclear because he's, he's changing the gen, he's taking the side out, changing the genetic blueprint, and he's creating Eve. But uh, it is worth uh, noting that you know, Adam was created out of the dust of the ground, verse 7. He formed man out of the dust of the ground. But Eve he made from Adam. This is a beautiful thing. The, just the beauty of, of marriage. You know, God, again, had a plan for this marriage. It's supposed to be a model of, of Christ and the church, Christ and the believer, of Israel uh, and God. It says, then the rib, verse 22, the rib which the Lord God had uh, taken from man, he made 
into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, that word made, the Hebrew uh, word, let me back up, that particular word in Hebrew is used like 400 times um, in the Old Testament, virtually every single time, with just a couple of exceptions, it's translated built. He built the woman. And there's the, 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 there's just a sort of a beautiful sense. He, he orchestrated uh, this uh, creation. So it's the Hebrew word yatsar. Noah built an ark. Moses built an um, altar. Uh, in 1 Chronicles 17.4, the Lord to David, you shall not build me a house. Same word. As God uh, he took the rib, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he built a woman. <laughs> and it says that he brought her to the man. And you, you can only imagine how breathtaking that must have been for Adam when she shows up. Verse 23. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So uh, the word there for woman, the Hebrew isha, which actually means wife. The word ish means husband. And um, again, uh, just a, just a, a, a wonderful picture of the oneness between a husband and a wife. She is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, how much time do we have? Ooh, 7.41. So when I get into marriage counselor counseling, I get... Um, I get really, 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 really tough. I really do. I put on the boxing gloves. <laughs> I, I, I do. And I more or less assume I'm going to lose a friend. And the reason is because usually when marriage counseling happens, it's because things have gotten so bad that they're actually willing to, to come out and, and talk about it. Things are really, really bad. And divorce is a real, real possibility. And one of the things that my, my experience with divorce, the reason, it, the reason it is so painful, divorce is, is because in a very real, real sense, when husband comes together with wife, with wife there's bone of bone, flesh of flesh, and in, 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 in divorce, you're, you're literally ripping apart the flesh, like ripping an arm off. And you can talk to people who have been divorced and some will tell you they'd rather have an arm ripped off. And oftentimes you'll hear, you'll hear I'd rather die <laughs> than the, the, the pain is, is so much. And I quote, I often um, have been quoting Malachi chapter 2 
when it comes to marriage, in, in Malachi chapter two, it says, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. Which he loves. God loves the institution of marriage. And that's why, um, you know, I, I do everything I can to fight for marriages and really try to confront both the husband and wife with their obedience to the Lord. Yeah, I know he's doing all those things. But First Peter 3 says that even though he's doing all these things, you need to continue to serve the Lord, to bless your husband, you know, or, or to the husband. I know she's doing all those things. But Ephesians chapter 5 says she's your ministry, and your ministry is to wash her on the water of the word and make her holy. It's the institution that God loves. Verse 16 of Malachi 2 says, for the, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence. Why? Because they were one flesh. And so verse 24 goes, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's quoted four times in the New Testament. Verse 25 says, and they were both naked and the man and his wife were not ashamed. And um, that word uh, naked, uh, there, it's, it has the sense of being totally open and exposed as a person before God and man. To be naked and not ashamed means to have, you know, you have no sin, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to hide. And that's what it was like in the, in the beginning. Just another little side note in verse 24 where it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Very interesting word there, joined. I also encourage you to do some homework on that, just a word study. It means to cleave, to cleave. In the book of Exodus, God says to the Israelites, none of the diseases that cleaved with the Egyptians will come unto you. Well, a disease becomes one with a person. And so... It's more than, it's kind of like abiding in Christ. It, it's more than just this one-on-one uh, relationship. It's really a one relationship, not one-on-one relationship. And again, the chapter closes, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And that's, we've talked a lot about abiding in Christ because it appears so much that word in, in John and First John. And abiding has that same concept. It's completely, fully disclosed, transparent, fully shared relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, that is what the relationship with Adam and Eve and God was prior to the fall. 
So we are going to uh, close now. We're going to have a time of prayer. So what I would like is just to ask the worship team to come up. We pray for about the last 15 minutes of the Sunday night service, and we divide up into little groups of four and five, and we uh, use what we've uh, learned here um, as a springboard for prayer. We also pray for uh, a minister.